Hello and welcome to another edition of The More Show, which is sponsored by the UFO Matrix magazine. On today's show, I'm about to be joined with our guest Howard Storm. Now, Howard was born in Newton, Massachusetts in 1946. He was a professor of art for 20 years at Northern Kentucky University. In 1985, he had a near-death experience in Paris, which transformed his life. He eventually studied to become a parister, and in 1992 was ordained in the United Church of Christ. On numerous occasions, he has communicated the message he received from his near-death experience to various groups and through the media. He has appeared on shows including The Oprah Winfrey Show, 48 Hours, and The Discovery Channel. Howard Storm, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, Howard, tell me who you were prior to 1985, before your near-death experience. I was a 38-year-old college professor. I was a professor of art, um, very um, aggressive. I um, liked having my own way. I um, thought of myself as a big, bad bear, and uh, I um, believed in... um, scientific explanation of things. I was a materialist. I didn't um, have any uh, faith. I thought um, religion was um, silly and superstitious. And the people that I hung out with, my friends at the university, were all um, atheists. And um, we all thought we were way too intelligent for superstition or myths or religion or anything like that. So you would say that uh, you know religion was uh, an opium for the masses. That sort of you know life Absolutely. never yeah that life never continued. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'd heard a near death experience, and I figured that was some sort of um, dopamine rush that a person got as like a little bonus at the end, um, you know, to a little euphoria to keep you from um, uh, suffering um, termination of life. Now, before we continue here, um, how would you sum up a, a near-death experience? Well, they vary enormously. Um, but one thing that they certainly have in common is that they're life-changing. And people have these mystical experiences, um, which, of course, has to do with um, being conscious at a time when you're not supposed to be conscious anymore, at a time when you're dying, in the dying process, um, somewhere down that road. And um, people have these um, mystical conscious experiences that change their lives. Now, at the time, uh, in 1985, you were creating works of art, is that right? Yes. Okay. What what kind of works of art did you create? I was a... um, modern artist. My work was uh, uh, fairly abstract and uh, um, was very much involved with the art world and was having some success exhibiting my work and um, showing it around. Now, did you ever come across hard times during that period? No, things were going really well for me, except um, my... um, I had a lot of uh, depression, and um, I just figured that was uh, the cost of being a realist was since life had no meaning and there was no purpose to it other than whatever um, pleasures you could achieve along the way, um, 
I wonder why one would be a little melancholy since there was no point to any of it. So, at uh, I was so 38 years old, you were in Paris, you collapsed. Tell me what happened. At 11 o'clock in the morning, um, I had a perforation of the small stomach. There was no warning of it, really. It just um, hit me like that. Um, the stom- what, what was happening was the stomach acid and juices were, um, had erupted through the wall of my small stomach into my abdominal cavity, and when that hit, um, the you know, main component of that is hydrochloric acid. When that hit, it was just excruciatingly painful and dropped me right down to the ground, screaming and yelling and kicking and thrashing. You know, like um, I, didn't, I didn't know where it came from or what it was happening. Um, and my wife called the uh, um, desk in the hotel, and they called an emergency service, and a doctor came, and he knew um, almost immediately what was wrong. He examined me, and he called for an ambulance to take me to a hospital, which um, came and took me across Paris to a public hospital. Now, I can imagine that being extremely painful. Now, uh, what sort of a medical attention did you receive at the time? Well, um, the emergency doctor was um, very nice. He, the uh, two doctors that examined me at the hospital, um, which was a public assistance hospital in Paris were very nice. Um, my wife was long, so they took my medical history. They knew um, what was wrong, told me that I had to have surgery like now, not like in an hour or two, or, you know, I was going to go right to a surgical hospital and have surgery. And off I was sent to another hospital. And when I got to the other hospital, I didn't... Um, know what was going on but apparently because it was a Saturday um, there was no surgeon available to do any surgery so I was parked in a room and left there for um, 10 hours and was never seen that entire time by a doctor and I believe at that time you you know you thought this was it for you didn't you I mean you actually said goodbye to your wife did did you not well yeah the um, pain that had sent me to the ground screaming and thrashing just got worse and worse and worse and I was never given any medication um, there was no no procedures done um, on a couple occasions a nurse came into the room and I begged her for you know s- stuff and she said sorry there's no doctor available no, nobody could prescribe anything without a doctor's permission so um they didn't give me anything. They didn't do anything. They just left me there. The doctors in the United States told me that my life expectancy was five hours, and um, I was in that um, state for ten hours. And I don't see it as a. Um, and I don't take it personally. It's just uh, the system over there, you know. Yeah. But for you, you know, you missed missed out. No doctor, no doctor around to do the surgery. So tough luck. You know, you die. So, at that, that at this point, uh, as far as you was concerned, you know, when you die, you enter oblivion, basically, yeah? Yeah, I, um, when the nurse told me at 8.30 that night that they were unable to locate a doctor and they'd try and get one the next day, which would have been Sunday, um, 
I said goodbye to my wife, closed my eyes, and went unconscious. And I had been fighting off death for hours and hours, um, fighting off the pain. And I knew that the simplest thing for me to do and the only sensible thing for me to do now was to just let it take its course. And so I went unconscious and um, fully expecting that to be the end of my um, pitiful little 38-year-old life. But instead, I awoke from my unconsciousness, and I was standing next to the bed, and I felt terrific. I didn't have the pain in the stomach. I was very aware of my situation, knew that I where I was, and that I was waiting to have surgery. And um, I was unable to communicate with my wife or the um, roommate that I had, who was a very kind elderly Frenchman, and that was very disturbing because I felt perfectly real yet yelling and screaming at them to get attention, their attention, I was unable to um, get any reaction from them whatsoever. Okay, okay. And did you, did you try to touch them at all? I mean, could you, could you physically touch them? Um, yeah, I could, I mean, I could feel everything, just um, actually more, I could feel more than I normally was capable of feeling. My, sense were, my senses were very heightened. Right, so so you were still uh, uh, solid, yeah, um, but you were uh, all of a sudden sat next to yourself who was uh, lying unconscious in bed. Now, what was that like to, to view yourself? It was um, very disturbing because I know that you can't be two places at once. So it was impossible for me to be standing there looking at myself lying in the bed. So I had to come to the conclusion that although that looked like me, it couldn't possibly be me. Now, I couldn't figure out how there would be something in my bed that looked like me. So the only thing that I could conclude was those clever French people had made a wax replica of me and snuck it into the bed while I was unconscious. And But I didn't know why they would do that except some sort of perverse you know, <laughs> need to drive me crazy. Yeah. I knew that that was crazy, too. I mean, I knew that none of this made any sense, but I'm trying to think of some logical reason why, you know, I'd, I would be in the bed, but I wasn't in the bed. I was standing there looking okay. at me, you know. So tell me about who met you then and uh, on, on what they were doing. Well, I heard people outside the room. They would not come into the room, which was bright um, and lit. They stayed out in the hall, which was um, dank dark and they were saying um in english no french accent which i thought was peculiar for um personnel at the hospital because obviously the people at the hospital all spoke french um but these people were speaking english and they were saying hurry up let's go we've been waiting for you um and i went over to the doorway of the room and they were back off in this darkness and i said you know i'm very sick i'm supposed to have surgery i've been waiting all day um and they said, we know all about you. Uh, we've been waiting for you. It's time for you to go. Let's go. So I thought that they were um, from the hospital to take me to surgery. So I left the room and went with them into the hallway. And they started leading me um, into this, um, down this emptiness, this dankness, um, which I thought was the way to surgery, but turned out to be the way to nowhere. And we just journeyed on and on for... Um, an interminable amount of time. So, I mean, uh, this was a sort of hallway you was walking down, would you say? Well, I thought it, I thought it was, but I came to realize that it had no features at all. 
so um, other than it being a flat surface we were walking on, there were no walls, no no nothing. It was just um, it was just emptiness. And as we journeyed, um, it got darker and darker, and the people increased in number and came closer around me as we went on. And I tried to ask them questions and things, but they were um, uh, very um, nasty and um, wouldn't communicate with me. Just told me to keep moving, keep moving, keep going, you know, like that. What did they look like? Um, because of the, uh, because they were keeping the distance from the darkness, um, it was really hard to see. They they looked very ordinary, just bland. Um, they seemed to be dressed in gray, um, and uh, they there were no um, clear features to them at all. And were were they heckling you or laughing at you? At this point, no. Um, but as we went further down into it, they started to say rude things about me. And um, when I would say, what are you saying? What are you, what are you doing? And, um, others of them would say, don't, don't start. Don't, you know, don't, it's not time. Wait, wait, you know, be quiet. Don't talk to them. You know, I mean, and it was all getting really, really scary because they're like, some of them were trying to tell others to be careful not to not to frighten me too much, you know. Um, so finally we got to a place where I couldn't see anything anymore, and um, I was just terrified. And I said, I'm not going to go any further. I'm, I want to go back. And they said, well, you're almost there, and they started to push and pull at me, so I tried to um, fight them off. And the more that I fought with them, the more they um, got... Um, excited by that, and they were sort of playing with me, uh, people um, scratching and biting and pushing and shoving and um, hitting, and um, the more I tried to fight them off, the more agitated they became. And I became aware that now there were a lot of them, and I, since it was pitch black, I have no idea how many there were, um, maybe dozens and dozens or hundreds, I don't know, but the um, noise became very, very loud of them screaming and yelling and um, jeering and insulting, and um, I fought really hard, as hard as I could to protect myself, but um, with so many of them, it was um, a losing battle, and they um, did what they wanted um, with me. And it was very um, demeaning. Um, and if they had wanted to just tear me from limb to limb, they could have, but that's not what they wanted to do. They um, just wanted to uh, play. Um, their play was to elicit pain from me. So very much an emotional, traumatized you at the time then? Oh, yeah. And that was as... I eventually, you know, was defeated and laying on the ground all ripped up and unable to respond to them anymore. Um, I realized that the um, emotional, psychological violation was much worse than the physical pain that I was experiencing because um, what they did was uh, very degrading. So physical pain? Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
what happened next? Well, I'm lying there unresponsive to them anymore, which um, made them very unhappy. And I heard myself, which I didn't, this didn't come out of my throat, didn't come off my lips, but I heard myself say, pray to God, and I thought, hmm, what a dumb idea, I don't believe in God. And the second time, same thing, pray to God, and I thought, I don't even know how to pray. I couldn't pray if I wanted to. And a third time, um, same thing, pray to God. And I was thinking, hmm, when I was a kid, and my parents used to take us to church, and um, we said prayers, and like, what were, the, what were those prayers? And I was trying to remember things that I'd learned as a child, and it got all confused with things that I'd memorized all through school, um, and it was just garbled. And when I began to um, try to murmur some of these things in an attempt basically to remember some prayers to see if they would do any good in terms of getting rid of these people who were tormenting me. Um, some of these things were murmured by me, and the people around me became very, very agitated, and they were saying to me in um, gross language that there was no God, nobody could hear me, and that if I didn't stop it, they were going to make things much worse for me. Well, I finally was able to um, fight back by um, any mention of God that I could make. So I was um, blasting them with um, little bits and pieces of things that I was trying to um, recall from basically my childhood. And it had the effect of driving them away from me into the darkness. And uh, they told me that they would be back, but um, I was free of them for a while. And so I lay there and started to think about my situation and what was going on. So, now you look back, all those years ago, would you say you was in hell? Um, I, I, the way I look at it was I was being um, processed, sort of, um, in the, when you go into the army, they kind of um, have to um, take away um, any hope, <laughs> you know, sort of, sort of break you down to make you into a, um, you know, a good soldier. I think I was being processed for hell. And I, th I think I was certainly in the um, beginning stages of being prepared for hell, which I think gets much worse than what I experienced. So, uh, did you think that this was a dream, or did it feel a lot more realer than sort of life? Um, no comparison to a dream. Obviously, um, I've had millions of dreams in my life, and there's no relationship between this and dream. Matter of fact, um, I know this is hard for people to appreciate, but life is a dream compared to what I experienced. I see, since, ever since I've been back, I sort of see the world as a dream, you know, because this world isn't nearly as real um, as what I experienced during this whole thing. So, what words did you utter then to get out of there? Well, I recalled myself as a child sitting in a Sunday school classroom thinking about um, a little song that uh, children learn in Sunday school, Jesus Loves Me. And when I was um, recalling that, I remembered myself as a child um, believing in that. And so I said, Jesus, save me. I, I yelled out, Jesus, save me, in the hopes that it might possibly be true. And to my um, 
delight and surprise it was true, and that he came into that um, darkness as a being of light, and he um, reached down and touched me, and all my um, gore and wounds and things um, just kind of disappeared, and he picked me up and embraced me and held me to him and carried me up out of that place. And uh, what did Jesus look like? Um, so um, bright that I couldn't see anything at all except for um, a, a blinding brightness. But when uh, I was very young, I worked for a year as a welder. And when you um, bring your mask down <laughs> to too slowly, um, you get flashed, and it, it really hurts your eyes. You know, sometimes you go home with tremendous headaches from flashing yourself from welding too much. But um, this light was brighter than that, but it didn't hurt like bright light does in this world. It was just overwhelming. And, of course, the the love that came with him was um, what was um, the um, chief experience that I was having, was being loved by him. And how did that make you feel? Well, it was wonderful, but also I was beginning to feel very guilty because um, I had spent my entire adult life saying that was all a lot of nonsense and silliness, and now I was being rescued from this horrible place of torment by this being whom I had denied his existence my entire adult life. And I was feeling pretty badly about it, and um, I finally thought to myself, he's made a terrible mistake. And... He spoke to me for the first time um, telepathically, and he said that he always kind of spoke in um, plural. He said, we don't make mistakes, and you um, do belong here. That's because we were moving out of the world of darkness towards the world of light, and I'm, like, getting this um, really, uh-oh, feeling that um, we're headed towards um, God, heaven, the angels, the whole, the whole works is up ahead of us, and all the stuff that I always said was nonsense is what we were moving towards, and um, I felt like a piece of garbage and really, really stupid. Um, and he was um, he proceeded to um, assure me that it was okay. And did you feel that when you was going towards the white light that this is where you belonged? Um, yes, and I had very mixed feelings. I was very conflicted because... Of course, you know, it's, it's got to be preferable to where I'd been, but I also was feeling that um, I was unfit, not worthy. Um, you know, like I'd been um, scum rescued out of the gutter, and now I'm being taken to the royal palace, and it's like, hmm, this isn't, this isn't good either, you know? Yeah. I'm not ready, yeah. for the, not ready to meet the king and the queen quite yet, you know? Did you feel that you'd been there, you'd been this to this place before? No. No, I did not. It was all new to me. Okay. And um, tell me about what they showed you when you, uh, when you ended up where you ended up. Well, um, we never got to heaven or anything. We, we um, stopped. We were between the world of light and the world of darkness. And um, he said that he wanted to show me my life. So he called out and some other 
beings of light whom I refer to as angels came who had unbeknownst to me um, been with me during my life around me during my life and record my life and we proceeded to watch my life chronologically from um, beginning to end um, going over scenes um, exploring things that happened during these scenes in other words exploring the um, feelings that people had when they saw my life, uh, exploring um, the impact of things that I did or didn't do with people, seeing the consequences of my life in addition to just the um, actions. And it was um, fun at first, but as my life proceeded, it became less amusing because I saw that my... um, manipulative and my um, um, selfishness um, were very displeasing to Jesus and the angels and um, quite unattractive, actually. And what they were interested in was um, how I had been compassionate, how I cared about other people, how I'd helped other people, and we were seeing less and less of that and more um, self-serving action. So did you get to feel the feelings of what uh, what people went through that uh, I suppose you had hurt? Very much so. It was very disturbing. Because um, I'd um, sort of gone through life thinking that I was like the victim of like an unfair and unjust world made up of a lot of cruel people. And what I was seeing in my life review was that I was <laughs> basically the unfair and unjust world. And I wasn't a victim at all. I was... Uh, I was more of the victimizer than the victim. um, Very disturbing to see um, the truth of it. So was it it a case then they were more concerned with whether you had been a compassionate person or not? That's all they compared. That's all they compared about was whether I was compassionate or not. That was the only thing that really mattered to them. And what what did they feel about the bad things that you did? Um, they, it was really quite clear that it, it literally caused them um, emotional pain. It was, they were so, so disappointed in the things they did. The, the good news was is that I knew that they cared about me and loved me even though they really despised things that I was doing with my life. They never despised me, which was kind of interesting. Um, and I, I felt that they loved me even though they hated what I was doing with this life that I'd been given. Well, I suppose if we, if we all come from the same source, this, this energy source, this conscious source, then how can you uh, hate your opposite or yourself that you see in an opposite? Um, you know, you, you, you've got to show some um, compassion, haven't you, if that makes sense, what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, God doesn't doesn't have an ounce of um, hate, but he, that doesn't mean that he likes what we do to each other. Matter of fact, he's, um, it makes all of heaven unhappy when we are cruel to each other. And it's so unnecessary, too, I mean, to be cruel to each other. It would, it would be a much nicer world if we could behave a little better. Or, and to sort of uh, love one another as well. Yeah. If we were actually to love one another, the world would be unrecognizable from what it is. 
So did you see any of your family members um, when you was um, reviewing your life? I mean, you, you, you say that Jesus was there and there was perhaps some other uh, angels there, but w was you, any of your family members there? I don't know. The reason why I don't know is they asked me if I wanted to see what they had looked like in their human form, and I told them no, that I hated people, and I never wanted to see another person ever again. And so they, out of um, respect for my wishes, never showed me who they had been, if they had been in human form. So I never got to see that because of my own stupidity. Do you know, this, this reminds me very much of that film, um, where, dreams, where Dreams May Come, that's the film. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, with uh, Robin Williams. Yeah, one, yeah. Of, one of the most spiritually underrated films ever produced, and the reason the film bottoms is because pe people just didn't get it. But, you know, I, yeah. I recommend anyone watch that, because what you're describing uh, is, is much like that film. Um, one thing I've got to ask you is, obviously, there's many people that, that have had near-death experiences, and a lot of these people have never talked about a, a sort of hell scenario or a lower astral plane, as you all sort of, sort of described. Yeah. Do you think you had that experience, is, or you had that particular experience, because um, you, you create whatever experience you want to have when you pass. I mean, just because we pass doesn't mean we stop creating. And because you had... Uh, uh, no faith, let's put it that way, no, 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 you, you wasn't really spiritual, you wasn't religious, yep. and because of that, you, you brawl along um, th this dark place that you went to. I mean, you, 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 you basically created that experience um, to, to bring you to the light. I mean, do, do you think that particular place that I described as hell earlier on really does exist? Yes, because, um, uh, and, and what you said is certainly one way of, of stating it. I mean, I, I, I could express it in other ways, but I, I don't disagree with anything that you said, that we, in a sense, do create our own reality, not only in this world, because I think there's people living in hell in this world, you know, and also I think there's people living in bliss in this world and, 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 and um, in great joy and bliss. And... Um, Basically, um, we do that ourselves. We create the the state of our consciousness in this world, and to more appropriately to what you just said, when.